Well, friends, please stand for the reading of God's Word as we begin a new series, I guess you would say end of summer series. We just finished up on the life and ministry of King David. Now we are fast-forwarding about a hundred years into the future, past the life of David. Things have deteriorated, and they have deteriorated quickly, and God has called his servant, his prophet Elijah, onto the scene. Remember, beloved, these are the very written words of God, written for you and written for me. Now, Elijah, the Tishbite of Tishbe and Gilead, said to Ahab, as the Lord, the God of Israel lives, before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. And the word of the Lord came to him, depart from here and turn eastward and hide yourself by the brook Kareth, which is east of the Jordan. You shall drink from the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord. He went and lived by the brook Kareth, that is east of the Jordan, and the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening. And he drank from the brook. And after a while, the brook dried up, because there was no rain in the land. Then the word of the Lord came to him, Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. Behold, I have commanded a widow there to feed you. So he arose and went to Zarephath. And when he came to the gate of the city, behold, a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called to her and said, Bring me a little water in a vessel that I may drink. And as she was going to bring it, he called to her and said, Bring me a morsel, bring me some food, some bread in your hand. And she said, As the Lord your God lives, I have nothing baked, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. And now I am gathering a couple of sticks that I may go in and prepare it for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. And Elijah said to her, Do not fear, go, and do as you have said. But first, make me a little cake of it, and bring it to me, and afterward make something for yourself and your son. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, the jar of flour shall not be spent, and the jug of oil shall not be empty, until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. And she went and did as Elijah said, and she and he and her household ate for many days. The jar of flour was not spent, neither did the jug of oil become empty, according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by Elijah. Indeed, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever and may he add his blessing to it. You may be seated. When I visited my family in the Carolinas a couple weeks ago, I asked my father to show me where the Carolina Panthers were building their new billion-dollar practice facility. Some of you here may have visited the Star, the Dallas Cowboys, practice facility a few miles north. Who here has visited the star ever as kind of a day activity? Not as many as I thought. That's kind of interesting. 
Maybe you have another team you pull for. At any rate, if you were ever to go to the star, it is state-of-the-art. They have practice facilities almost without peer in the NFL, and there's kind of a maybe an informal competition between these NFL teams to see who can have the best stadium and the best practice facilities. Well, the Carolina Panthers are no exception. They just got a new owner a few years. He was not going to be outdone by Jerry Jones. And so he purchased 300 acres of land just south of Charlotte in an area called Rock Hill, South Carolina, to build this new billion-dollar practice facility. So for the last two years, work has been underway. I think $200 million of steel have been put in the ground until this past March when it was announced that the deal is dead. The company that the owner used to build the practice facility has declared bankruptcy. And there is an argument between David Tepper, the owner, and the city of Rock Hill, South Carolina, both accusing each other of breach of contract. So I asked my dad to show me this facility that's maybe a fourth of the way finished. You have this hulking edifice of steel, $200 million of steel, built into the ground, and it is never moving forward. To say that there are lawsuits that have now been filed would be a massive understatement. Well, a lawsuit, a contentious lawsuit, is the context of our passage today. In 1 Kings 17, Yahweh has filed suit against his people for breach of covenant, and Elijah, the prophet, is his covenant prosecutor. And that's the role that prophets played in Old Testament Israel. They served as covenant prosecutors. Their role, among other things, was to enforce the terms of the covenant. And the nation of Israel had breached the covenant. The people were guilty, and it started at the, at the top with their wicked king Ahab, who formally introduced Baal worship to Israel. So Elijah, he comes on the scene out of nowhere to let the northern kingdom know that sanctions were coming. And, and we are a people today that are kind of acquainted with the idea of sanctions. We've heard a lot in the news about, about sanctions. Just last week, sanctions were announced by China against Nancy Pelosi for having the audacity to visit Taiwan. So somehow China is going to sanction Nancy Pelosi and her family. I don't know the details. I don't know how that's going to happen, but they're going to sanction her in some way, shape, or form. It's kind of saber-rattling. And of course, the entire international community has levied sanctions against Russia for their invasion against Ukraine. The purpose of sanctions are to make life uncomfortable, okay, and elicit change. Elijah, the prophet of God, was there to announce that sanctions were coming for violation of the covenant. That's what's happening here. That's the context. About a hundred years after David, things are very dark 
in the northern kingdom of Israel. You know by now that after David, he was succeeded by Solomon. Solomon gets succeeded by Rehoboam, and it was under the ministry and kingship of Solomon's son that Israel divided into two nations. So as of 931 BC, you have Israel in the north and Judah in the south, and the focus of Elijah's ministry and Elisha's ministry is in the northern kingdom. Let's look at verse 1. Out of nowhere, the writer of 1 King introduces Elijah, the Tishbite of Tishbe in Gilead. We have no idea where Tishbe is, really. Elijah, this prophet, he said to Ahab, as the Lord, the God of Israel lives, before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. Now, the Lord had lots of different tools in his toolkit to enforce the terms of the covenant. And in this situation, the Lord chose the sanction of drought. And that was no mistake. That's not a coincidence. We'll learn why later. Of all the things that the Lord could have done to get the attention of his people, he chose to levy the sanction of drought. And as you know, droughts can be totally devastating. Now, we've gotten a tiny taste of drought here over the past month. I think if I looked last night at, um, the, uh, at DFW Airport and at Love Field, there's been no measurable rainfall in this area, I think, for over six weeks. How many people here, how many, how many foundations are hurting right now at your house? We live on a slab. Stephanie, I'm not embellishing it. We can hardly close our front door. Our foundation has moved so much. New cracks are forming. Our yard, our yard is now yellow, the, almost the entire yard. In Stephanie's word, we do a thorough soaking once a week, but that can't keep up in these drought-like conditions. Imagine how this would feel if it went on for three years straight. It would be devastating to us, and we're the wealthiest country in the history of the world. A three-year doubt in the context of the Middle East that struggles with water anyway. Totally catastrophic. Okay? So what did Ahab, king in Israel, do to deserve this kind of sanction? Okay? If you were to look back, just a few verses to 1 Kings 16. The writer of 1 Kings tells us the following about Ahab. Ahab married Jezebel, okay? The infamous Jezebel. Ahab married Jezebel, daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians. Okay, so Ahab marries the daughter of a foreign king, which he should not have done. And Ahab began to serve Baal and worship him. Ahab set up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal that he built in Samaria. So if it wasn't bad enough that Ahab worshipped Baal in Israel, he actually built an altar and temple to Baal in the capital city of the northern kingdom, Samaria. 
Ahab also made an Asherah pole, another instrument of idolatry. And listen to this. This is quite a claim. Ahab did more to arouse the anger of the Lord, the God of Israel, than all the kings of Israel before him. So the previous kings of Israel were terrible. They were idolatrous. But the previous kings in Israel, they were amateurs when it came to sin in comparison to Ahab. Whereas the previous kings, they corrupted the worship of the true God. Do you know how Ahab upped the game, the idolatry game? He introduced a brand new God, okay, to be worshipped in Israel. He didn't just corrupt the worship of the true God. He introduces a brand new substitute God for the people to worship. Okay, that's the situation that God sends Elijah into, and Elijah is key to ending the drought. That's why he's got to get out of Dodge very quickly. Look at verses 2 through 6. And the word of the Lord, the word of Yahweh, came to Elijah. Depart from here and turn eastward and hide yourself, okay, because the drought wasn't going to end until the Lord through Elijah pronounced an end. So as soon as Ahab figured out that this thing is actually happening, according to the prophecy of Ahab, everybody in Israel would be looking for Elijah. The word of the Lord came to Elijah, depart from here and turn eastward and hide yourself by the brook Kareth, which is east of the Jordan. Okay, let's look at the map. Look at your insert. Let's orient ourselves. Where are we? If you look at the country of Israel, the emboldened text is right in the middle of your map. You have Israel in the north. You look, and look down and to the left, there's Judah. And then if you look to the right, there's Ammon. All right? If you were to look just to the north and to the left, to the west of Israel, you'll see Samaria. Okay, that's where God is sending Elijah to confront Ahab, okay? That's happening in Samaria, okay? After he pronounces judgment, the sanction of drought, the Lord tells Elijah, get out of Dodge and go to the Kareth Brook. Now look to the right of Israel, look above Ammon, if you look to the north, you should see the Kareth Brook there. That's where scholars think the Kareth Brook is. That's where Elijah is hiding out, okay, in this little area of safety and protection. That's where he is, in the Transjordan, an area east of the Jordan. Look at verse 4. You shall drink from the brook, and I have commanded the ravens there to feed you. So he went... And did according to the word of the Lord, he went and lived by the brook Kareth, that is east of the Jordan, and the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning, and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. And after a while, the brook dried up, because there was no rain in the land. In other words, the drought was having its effect. It was having its effect all the way into the Transjordan, all the way east of the Jordan, and even where Elijah was, things were drying out. So we have two miracles so far. First, the imposition of the drought. 
Second, the provision of the ravens to bring bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening. You probably are aware of this, that ravens typically do not feed people. This would be very unusual. This was a miraculous, non-natural, supernatural provision. Certainly not Israelites. Why would it be unusual if a bird was to feed an Israelite? It wouldn't be a raven. Ravens were viewed to be unclean. Very unusual. This is a miracle. Let's continue in verses 8 and 9. Then the word of the Lord came to him. Arise, go to Zarephath. Okay, he had to leave to go to Zarephath because the brook Kareth had dried up. He had to go somewhere else now. Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon. Okay, look at your map again. Orient yourself. Israel in the middle. Go to the northern part of the map, and you'll see at the very north of the map, you'll see Zarephath, and you'll see Sidon. Do you see that? Okay, so God is commanding his prophet Elijah, now to go way north and west, to go all the way up to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. Behold, I have commanded a widow there to feed you. Now, do you notice any irony there? The Lord is sending Elijah into the heart of Baal territory and Baal was the problem. Okay, look at your insert on the other side now. Now, this is fascinating. We love our history. We love these, these steels or these reliefs. This is a relief that is a depiction of the Canaanite god Baal. This relief was found very close to Zarephath. And Sidon. This relief goes back to the time period when our passage was written. This relief could have been worshipped by the people of Tyre and Sidon and Zarephath. This actual relief. It was found in 1932. Look in the left hand of Baal. It kind of looks like a tree. That's not a tree. That's a lightning bolt that Baal is hurling down. Baal was the god of rain. Baal was the god of the storm. Baal was the god of the harvest. Okay, Baal was Jezebel's god. Baal was the god that Ahab brought into Israel and said, he's your provider. He brings life. He brings the rain. And so God is sending Elijah right into the teeth, right into the heart of enemy territory. Fascinating that this is happening. He's sending him to be cared for by a widow. So if it was unusual and extraordinary and miraculous for Elijah to be cared for by a raven, it was even more unusual and more extraordinary and more miraculous that during a time of drought that he would be provided for by a pagan widow. So the ravens and the widow, their roles are parallel to one another. You might even call this the Old Testament precursor to Jesus' multiplication 
of the loaves and fishes. So, verse 10. Elijah. You know what that name means? Yahweh is my God. Whereas Ahab is worshiping Baal, God sends a prophet, either this was his name or this was a title that he had assumed on himself. God sends in Elijah, whose name literally means Yahweh is my God. So he arose and he went to Zarephath. Do you know what that means in Hebrew? The word Zarephath means refinery, refining. It could also be defined as the crucible. So God is sending his prophet to an area of the world where he's going to be refined. He's going to be shaped. He's going to be grown through an incredibly difficult trial. So Elijah, Yahweh is my God. He arose, he went to the refinery, he went to Zarephath, and when he came to the gate of the city, behold, a widow, just like the word of the Lord says, was there gathering sticks. And he called to her, and he said, bring me a little water in a vessel that I may drink. And as she was going to bring it, he called to her and said, bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. And she said, as the Lord lives, so she's taking an oath by Elijah's God, as the Lord lives, I have nothing baked, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. And now I am gathering a couple sticks that I may go in and prepare my last meal for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. And so swearing this oath by Yahweh, she's saying, I'm being real. I'm being completely honest and transparent. I've got nothing left. As soon as I fix this, it's over. It's done. Verse 13. Elijah said to her, do not fear. Go and do as you have said. Go make this meal. But first make me a little cake of it and bring it to me. And afterward, make something for yourself and your son. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, the jar of flour, it shall not be spent. And the jug of oil that you would make and combine with the flour to make bread, it shall not be empty, not until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. And she went, amazingly, this pagan widow, she went and did as Elijah said, and she and he and her household, her son, ate for many days. The jar of flour was not spent, neither did the jug of oil become empty. Why? according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by Elijah. So have you noticed this refrain? Have you noticed the repetition? All happened according to what? According to the word of the Lord that he spoke by Elijah. What's the point so far? Who is in complete and utter control of the situation? Yahweh God Almighty, the covenant God of the Hebrews. He is in control. Where is he working right now? He's working in Zarephath. Who did the people of Zarephath trust in? Who did the people of Sidon trust in? They trusted in Baal, the God of the rain, the God of the harvest, who is completely impotent to care for the needs of this widow, who is completely incapable of caring for the needs of the Sidonians. 
Baal. Who has gone into enemy territory just to make the point of who the provider actually is. Do you know who this book was written to? Who was, or who were, the people, the intended audience of the book of First and Second Kings? It was most likely the Jews in exile. Why were the Jews in exile? The Jews were in exile both by the Assyrians and the Babylonians because they had not trusted in the Lord. They had trusted in a variety of other gods and not the Lord. And where did that land them? That landed them in exile. The writer of First and Second Kings is, is, is writing this to remind them, this is what happens when you don't trust in the Lord. It's not in your best interest to trust in anyone else than Yahweh God Almighty. This was an object lesson to reinforce to the people of exile that there's only one source of life and hope and provision, the God of the Hebrews. And if that weren't clear enough, it's driven home in verses 17 through 24. Let's look at panel five. We'll land the plane here. First Kings 17, verses 17 through 24, we'll end here. After this, this was totally unexpected. You talk about a curveball, this is a major curveball. The reader would not have been expecting this. After this, meaning after this miraculous provision, the son of the woman, okay, notice the qualifier for this widow. Notice the descriptor. After this, the son of the woman, she's already been described as a widow, it calls her the mistress. That is highly unusual. The Hebrew word for mistress there is female Baal. So in other words, the writer is intending you to understand that Baal's in the house. A Baal worshiper is in the house. Baal's presence is in the house. After this, the son of the woman, the Bala, the mistress of the house, her son became ill. Ill. His illness was so severe that there was no breath left in him. He died. And she said to Elijah, she is completely confused and distraught. What have you against me, O man of God? She thinks this whole thing was a setup. You have come to me to bring my sin to remembrance, okay? You're punishing me. You're here to cause the death of my son. And he said to her, give me your son. And he took him from her arms and carried him up into the upper chamber where he lodged and laid him on his bed. And he, Elijah, cried to the Lord, oh, Lord, my God, have you brought calamity even upon the widow with whom I sojourn? By killing her son, are you really going to do this? This was a genuine, this was a heartfelt question. Yahweh, what are you doing? This woman, she's provided for me, she's cared for me, she has housed me, and you have killed her son, you've allowed her son to die. What is going on? He is distraught. Then verse 21, Elijah, he stretched himself out upon that child three times. And cried to Yahweh, Oh Yahweh, that's God's covenant name, Yod Heh Vah Heh, 
O Yahweh, O Lord my God, let this child's life come into him again. And the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah. And the life of the child came into him again. And he revived. He came back to life. And Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper chamber and into the house and delivered him to his mother. And Elijah said, see, your son, he lives. And the woman said to Elijah, now this is the whole point of this narrative. Now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is true. That's the point of this passage. The word of the Lord, it is true. And it is always true without exception. You can take it to the bank. The word of the Lord called for a drought. And what happened? There was a drought. The word of the Lord promised provision for Elijah and the widow and her son and Yahweh provided. The word of the Lord empowered Elijah to raise the widow's son from the dead and he did it in the heart of enemy territory in Baal's backyard. What's the point? What is the point? Yahweh's your provider, not Baal. What in the world are you doing worshiping this impotent God. It's the God of the Hebrews who is the true and living God. It's the same lesson he taught his people when he freed them from Pharaoh's hand in Egypt. The 10 plagues, what was the point of the 10 plagues? Each of the plagues was an assault on the hierarchy of Egyptian gods. The 10 plagues communicated that Yahweh is God, not the pantheon of God's of the Egyptians. The point is the same here. The widow was right. The word of the Lord is true. But if we're honest, do we always, do we consistently, do we without exception trust in the word of the Lord? Do you? Do I? Of course not. We are a people who trust in our own wisdom, in our own provision more times than we can count. Okay, every week we confess the sin of worry and anxiety. What is worry and anxiety the fruition of? It is the fruition of a lack of trust. We are a people who are serially guilty of trusting in ourselves and our own wisdom, our own background, our own degree, our own looks, our own bank account. It's just more subtle. It's just more sophisticated in our situation, in our case. The word of the Lord is true. In the new covenant, who do we learn is the word of the Lord who's always true? The Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father, except by me. The word of the Lord is true. Jesus said, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden and anxious, and I will give you rest. The word of the Lord is true. Jesus said, I am with you. How often? Always, 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 always even to the end of the age. The word of the Lord is true. 
The Lord Jesus Christ, my friends, he is truth. He is life itself. In the context of the entire biblical story, both Old Testament and New, that is the point of this narrative. Pray with me, our gracious God and Father. We are a people who trust in everything conceivable, everything imaginable, more than we trust in you so many times. Father, when we encounter difficulties and, and hardships, our, our, our first thought is, how are we going to solve this? How are we going to fix this? How are we going to get out of this? How is medicine going to save us? How is my ingenuity going to help us? Father, forgive us. Our first instinct, our first response should be to trust in the word of the Lord. Our first impulse should be to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, in his blood, his righteousness, his care, his provision. Father, help us to be a people that love him, worship him, and trust in him all the days of our life. We pray this in his matchless name. Amen and amen.